Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Can zombies tell us anything at all about spirituality or the deep meaning of the human condition? A hesitant first-time viewer of the popular television series The Walking Dead, author Danielle Strickland answers those questions with a resounding yes. She was surprised to find out that the show's themes guide us into a deeper understanding of our humanity by exploring some of the most important questions of our day. Her new book is called The Zombie Gospel, The Walking Dead, and What It Means to Be Human. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I give you Danielle Strickland. Danielle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you. You have written a great book, The Zombie Gospel, but The Walking Dead and what it means to be human. And I have so much to talk to you about The Walking Dead. I want to touch you a lot about The Walking Dead because I'm a huge fan. But I think that you are in the Salvation Army, right? You've, yes. You, you are an officer in the Salvation Army. I think that is, in North America, the religious institution, religious community that so many people have some sort of connection to, like the Bells, the thrift stores, everything. And act- and have no idea what the community is about. <laughs> is that, does that ring true? I mean, do you feel like you're always explaining to people what the Salvation Army kind of is? Yeah, it, it feels almost like like a best kept secret or like a mystery. But everyone knows they're good. People just don't know why they're good. You know, which is also interesting. So it's a, it actually has been fascinating. Um, I do explain it a lot. Mm-hmm. And it, like, how did you know if you were going to say because basically it's 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 a deni- it's a religious church structure kind of denomination thing, right? But but it's organized around kind of military metaphor, yeah, military structure, right? So like a pastor would be like an officer, right? Or yeah, exactly. And you, it's also organized militarily, like um, they post you where they need you, so they at, at their discretion, you know, you serve at their command kind of thing quite literally mm-hmm. and you know prayers are i know prayers are knee drills right i've heard the knee drill thing yeah look at you I, 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 yeah stuff i like i like knee drills and then we used to call we did i've done a lot of work in sort of inner cities in a bunch of cities in a few countries and we always call our prayer walks on the street street combat just because it sounds cooler <laughs> now do you have like special forces for people that are like real real depraved miscreants like we're all right we're, this is beyond the normal like field <laughs> ground troops we're bringing in the green beret <laughs> not really no no there's just really and actually the rank system is really based on time served so it's not you know the higher the rank usually just the older the officer <laughs> so nobody gets passed over for command it's like like, uh, like in a few good men <laughs> Yeah, well, no, there are command posts. So it is, I mean, it does have all sort of the pros and cons of a military construct. Uh, But I think one world leader of the Salvation Army once said, we're the largest army in the world and we have no guns. That was kind of a cool little idea. About 2 million soldiers around the world that are with the Salvation Army. That's like uh, Andy Griffith and Mayberry, the sheriff without a gun. There you have it. What what draws people into the Salvation Army, you think, that... uh, as opposed to like other kind of Christian traditions, like are there things that you think, okay, you're probably cut out for us? Or are there, are there things that like, okay, you're probably not going to make <laughs> be happy in this kind of stream of the tradition? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Salvation Army, I mean, my best description of the Salvation Army that I heard was a church with an acute social conscience. Um, I really like that. I think that if you're not prepared to serve, you probably don't want to go to the Salvation Army. It's, it's really a serve 
uh, culture. So everybody, and that's the idea, instead of members, we have soldiers because the idea is you're enlisted into something. It's not like, so if you're going to go to church to try to receive something, it's probably not the best. You might go to church and receive something from the Salvation Army, but that's not really why people are there. People are there to figure out how they serve uh, this mission of light in the darkness of, you know, trying to do something meaningful in the world. So what you're saying is for most Americans who are like, spiritually consumeristic and kind of what it's it's probably a tough it would probably be a tough adjustment for a lot of them yeah you know what's really interesting is that i've gone i've been to a lot of churches and partnered doing a bunch of projects especially around uh, human trafficking and vulnerable girls and uh there's some amazing like just amazing churches doing some great service and some fantastic justice and mercy work so i don't want to say like you know the salvation army has the market on that but that would be the primary you know, that'd be the thing that would set you apart as a Salvation Army is that the Salvation Army sees itself as a serving organization. So we serve the poor, we serve the needs of the oppressed, we serve the marginalized, like that, that would be kind of our main, our main gig. <laughs> so it sounds like you would get along well with like when you like, you know, certain Catholic religious orders that are that are very disciplined, that are among the poor, are living in community like it, you, do you have sort of a DNA connection there when you run into them. You know what? I do think that the Salvation Army is really more organized like a monastic order. I would say that that is way more. It's now it doesn't identify like that. It wouldn't say that. But actually, if you know about monastic orders and how they work, we work a lot like that. So that probably does. We do have an affinity. I know the Pope and the general. So our world leader, we have one world leader, just like the Catholics. And he's, he's the general. Uh, he's, it's also been a woman uh, several times, which also is a, a different thing about us, uh, which is fantastic. And why maybe we're so effective <laughs> women leadership. But anyway, I, I digress, but um they met uh, recently and the Pope was saying uh, how impacted he was as a young boy by seeing the Salvation Army in his hometown reaching out um, to sort of the folks that no one else would reach out to. He was really impacted in his faith by that, which was a kind of a cool. Mm. And then there's all there, like you'll read little places like Bonhoeffer writes about hearing Bramwell Booth, who's the son of William Booth, who started the Salvation Army in Germany right after the war. And the Salvation Army in England had heard that the Germans were so uh, you know, just poor after the, that, the, after World War II, I mean, sorry, World War One, that he, he took a bunch of supplies over and, and really cared for the Germans, which was really impacting to Bonhoeffer, of course, because the English were technically their enemy. And here was this group that spoke very intimately about God and was showing some practical, uh, love your neighbor as yourself stuff. And it really impacted Brown, uh, Bonhoeffer. So, all over the place, you'll see these like little like glimpses of how just service of like real love. Uh, somebody described it as love with its sleeves rolled up, mm. you know, can really impact and influence people around the world. It's kind of cool. So in all your spare time uh, laboring away in the Salvation Army, you needed a diversion. And one of them was The Walking Dead or what? How did you become a fan? Yeah. So this was kind of an accident. And this is what makes this book kind of really interesting to me. It's kind of a little bit of a veering off what I normally um, do. But in essence, I, I, I plugged in my earphones and watched on my iPad so I wouldn't contaminate anyone else in my house. You know, I have like little kids <laughs> and my husband's not a fan. And so I was like, I want to see what all the fuss is about. Like, what's going on with The Walking Dead? And um, as I watched it, I heard... I think what I would best describe as a cry. And um, I heard sort of these phenomenal questions being raised about what it meant to be human. Like, 
you know, what if all of the constraints that define us, like our job and economics and uh, who people think we are and status and privilege and wealth, what if they were all gone? You know, who would we be then? I just, I mean, I think, I, and I've done a lot of justice work over the years, and I think that is maybe a fundamental question to rediscover our humanity is who are we without all of these constraints? And then what does it look like to build a new world uh, in the midst of a despairing one? And I also think that's really, so I just, as I watched this thing, I was shocked to hear so clearly a message. And I feel like it, like a God message, like a sacred message of uh, what it means to be human. And I really felt like I wanted to have that conversation and I wanted other people to be having the conversation. So yeah, it's entertaining and they killed off Glenn and the zombie work is fantastic, you know, and the writing's good, but also like, what about those deep things we're hearing? Like those deep cries of a culture that's longing for something more. I'd like to have that conversation. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I, I think what you're saying is is true about most post-apocalyptic stuff especially if it's if you're seeing the people that are in the first generation of the change i mean maybe not so if it's centuries down or you know a century down the road or something but for people that lived in the old world like the postman or you know something like that yeah it's the deconstructing uh you know factor is there right that, that how much of who i was was bound up with social constructions and societal convention and really and the other thing that seems so interesting about the walking dead is the zombies are really just like a weather pattern, right? I mean, they're not, it's not like my wife and I just watched the strain. It just finished about this. It's this sort of like a vampire sort of virus kind of post-apocalyptic thing. But that's really like man versus or humanity versus evil, this evil Dracula figure and this, this, but, but really the walking dead is really like sort of humanity versus itself. And the new, I mean, the the zombies are, are, are not malicious, right? They're just, they're 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 mindless yeah they're 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 a weather pattern right and and you know what's really fascinating too is that the idea is that the disease is dormant in everyone you know and then when they die it becomes uh, a living thing so it's it's just a very fascinating idea of you know the old-fashioned idea of a christian word called sin you know which is really this human propensity to do the wrong thing um that's dormant in everybody kind of that's the idea this old-fashioned idea that it's dormant in everybody and it can be awakened um and I think, you know, the zombie thing too, really, really clearly, I mean, this is kind of a no brainer. If you look at any, like right from the beginning of the zombie culture is zombies by definition are, are beings, human beings that consume with no regard for what they're consuming. And that's horrifying if you think about because they're literally consuming other humans, right? So it's just like the ultimate, like, ah, they want brains, you know, it's just this horrifying thing. But um, if you think about our culture and how it's designed um, right now, I mean, literally, we are making, you know, whole generations of humans who are consuming with no regard for what they're consuming. And if you look at that really honestly, it's horrifying. Hmm. Yeah. And you talk about in the book how it's interesting at first when Rick, the kind of main character and protagonist, wakes up and he just kind of goes about the way he things the way he did in the old world he puts on his sheriff's uniform he he kind of sees himself as a peace officer and 
quickly it's you see how how this is sort of uh he's 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 it's he's dressed the wrong way for for the world i mean he's mean and, and and a lot of people when you talk about that a lot of people characters in the show have to change identities i mean they really like they're they're i mean they're in some ways for some of them it's it's like a the death sentence is like a pardon like the old dies <laughs> and right. they, they really get to reinvent themselves Right. Uh, and maybe certain family patterns or certain, you know, uh, self-defeating stories that they were being told from the old world get to pass away. Yeah. Well, all of them are re- like all of them have to figure out a new way to live, don't they? And they have to figure out a new way to live together. And you have these like phenomenal ideas like the, the Rick, you know, wearing the sheriff's uniform and driving the sheriff's car around and everybody just kind of going like, what are you doing? Like, there's no law. You know, like, you can't be the law. There is no law. Like, this is chaos. It's anarchy. Like, and I think even like when we talk about social structure, even, you know, in America right now where things are really tense and, you know, are the police good guys or bad guys and are the bad guys good guys? And we just thought they were bad. Like there's all these, like, you know, just everything's shifting right now. And it feels just like that. Like, does the uniform represent something like, is it, 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 and we're having to redefine what it means to be human in many ways and what it means in terms of, you know, who we are and who society says we are and what's true and what's not true. And there's all these kind of like really apocalyptic, like chaotic moments. But I feel like that's like the show suggests sort of this recipe for possibility, like for this emergence of a new thing, which actually isn't just survival. It's actually a better way in the end. So Rick ends up being really, really good friends with this outlaw. The two of them would not, would have been enemies, uh, in the old world, but in the new world, they become the best of friends, like tighter than brothers, because they can actually connect on a deeply human level. And they're no longer restricted or confined by these societal norms that kept them apart. So I think like, it's both terrifying, the, you know, the premise, and it's also like, really exciting at the possibilities of what we could discover together if we really chose to knew each other, like, chose to really see each other for who we really were and also um, chose to build a new world. Yeah. You know, the thing that strikes me about the show too, that is so amazing is how you really only know what's going on in the geographic window that the characters are in. So like, and it's so tribal. It's almost like pre-modern. Like, really, they only have so far. Like, you know, they've only, they've the furthest they've gone is from Georgia to Alexandria, a couple states away. And they there's not so in this globalized world that's shrinking. Right, it, it, we're we're aware of tragedies that happen all, like all the time that we 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 can't do anything about or we don't feel connected to. All of a sudden, the world shrinks, and people like uh, uh, the scary thing is the unknown, right? And and that community that is forty five minutes away, which forty five minutes now. Oh, okay, I drive you know that far to go to a nice restaurant downtown. You know that forty five minutes, that distance could at the other end of it could be a community that is completely terrifying, right? You know, what's really interesting about that is that it actually is how, you know, having lived in inner cities, like, you know, in really impoverished neighborhoods, it, it, that's, that's how that works there. Like, you know, I remember taking a bunch of kids on a tour, like on a singing, they were in a singing group that I started and we did this tour across Canada 
and none of them had ever left their postal code, you know, and you just, and that's a really interesting thing about economics, like the, the luxury of travel. I mean, we just really don't think about this, but I think a lot of the, you know, the sort of folks who are in survival mode, uh, that is a norm for them. You know, they don't, I mean, they can connect via the television or something like that, but, but their actual life is really, uh, really local really tribal. Yeah, and you talk about this hope to build a new world and yet there's a kind of a, a chastened hope. I mean, I think of like the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr that people talk about. It's like the origin of Christian realism. And he kind of, he realized part of the, the Christian theological view of reality, right, is, is slightly tragic, hopeful with, with a tinge of tragedy. And so the, 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 the work for newness can't be utopian. And, and, and is that how you, you, is that, is that part of the, the beautiful realism of the show that, 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 that there is a sense in which, uh, the, the reality they're in, uh, mitigates, uh, idolatrous hope and <laughs> kind of building an ideal utopia or anything, you know, but, but life can we, be better. Yeah. And actually things can define us differently. So, uh, and I think, you know, yeah, so there is, I do put in the front of the book because when I was, when we were releasing the book, I wanted people to really know that I'm, I'm actually a big fan of nonviolence. So I'm not a, like, not a violent fan, like at all of, of retributive violence and, and just the cycle of violence. It always increases. It never decreases. I mean, it's just, and in that show, you almost have the sense of fatigue that, you know, this, you're, you're tired even watching it. You're just like, you, you literally just like, you're like, oh, for Pete's sake, guys, like this isn't working. You know, that's not going to work. Like, and, um, and so there's a sense in which I think that's part of the writing of the show is that this cycle is exhausting and actually never going to work. Like this is not the way we build a new world, but it is the way the world is right now. And so I feel like that's that, that's that, um, that realism and even Jesus, you know, like Jesus wasn't like the Walt Disney fairy godmother of the world. You know, this is where I see a, 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 his witness so well is he, he has to die, you know, there, he has to suffer and he has to die even though he's innocent. And, um, you know, and there's all these nuances to the gospel story in that. One of the things I love about the, the, this new community that forms is as it goes on, you know, they, they ask newcomers who they can't trust. Everyone's sort of an enemy before they're a friend because they're, they're, they live in the real world. And, um, and they ask them two questions. The first question is how many zombies have you killed? And then the second question is how many humans have you killed? And if you can't answer them, honestly, you know, then you, you're not trusted. You can't be trusted in the community. I think that's a fascinating idea because what it basically, I feel like it, it's saying is that these are people who have dealt with their own dark uh, humanity, like their own capabilities of darkness, like the sadness of their own human condition. Like you, and you actually have to deal with that before you can become somebody else. And I think that's what we want to, I feel like the pie in the sky, American dream, sort of like all is going to be well, like honk because Jesus loves me. That kind of like shallow idea of the gospel is not what we're talking. That's not a Jesus centered gospel. A Jesus centered gospel is you got to get to your own human condition and realize that if it was up to you, you would have crucified Jesus too, to save yourself. You know, you would have shot the guy to get free. Like you, you, that's your human capacity for darkness. And until you confront that, which is what the cross is all about, right? It's a confrontation of human darkness. Until you confront that, then there's no resurrection. There's no way to move forward. There's no new community because you're still pretending you're something you're not. And so that, I think that's that stark, you know, it's not idealism. It's not this like, rose-colored utopia. It's this, it's this truth telling, you know, it's this honest confrontation of our capacity, um, to do harm 
And then it's this like, but once we confront that in us, once we know we can actually join a community of people who have discovered that they're better together and there's a way forward. Yeah. And you, you talk about the, the scene where the, uh, I think he's an Episcopal priest, right? It's, it's, it's Gabriel. Gabriel, yeah. right. Where Gabriel mm-hmm. confesses that and, and, and he saved himself, basically locked the doors of his church and let families get eaten alive while he saved himself. And you talk about how he is so scandalized and full of shame and no one else is really surprised that, that, that it, it's, it's interesting the way he almost finds his absolution from this group of people that, that really understand uh, where the world they're in, right. You know, and that people have had to do things like this. Yeah. And that's that. And I think that's interesting that the, the character that represents the church is kind of the least likable one, you know, because he struggles the most with the acknowledgement of his own humanity. And I think that's a really, a really good warning for the church, you know, that what people struggle with is not that they're human. It's that they pretend they're not human, you know? So it's that that when you meet people, you know, what they hate most about Christians is not that, you know, they screw up. It's that they pretend they don't screw up. I mean, that's the great, this pretense, this like hypocrisy, this idea that, you know, I'm not like you, I'm different than you. And actually, if we're all honest enough, we are all uh, human. That's what we are. We are truly human. And we have this capacity inside of us until we're honest with that, which you can find at a 12 step group, you know, before you can even get well, you have to acknowledge that you're sick. Right. And that's kind of this. And that's even like the cross is really interesting. John 3, 16 is one of the most famous Christian verses, you know, for God's will of the world. That he, but the, the verse before that, uh, it says that as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. It's this really obscure kind of weird reference to this time in the uh, in the Old Testament where the the Israelites were in the desert after crossing the, the sea and getting free from slavery, but they were dying from poisonous snake bites. And so Moses cried out to God and said, like, what are we going to do about these snake bites? And God said, build, like, make a bronze statue of a snake and hold it up. And anyone who looks at that snake will be healed. And you're kind of like, when you read the story, you're like, what? Like, like not a dove? Like, don't make a statue of a dove or like, I don't know, of like, of, of a cow like they would have in Egypt. But like, make a symbol of the very thing that's causing all the suffering and all the pain. And if you look to that, then you're healed. And it's almost, it's this pre-telling of a story that's coming, right? And then John's gospel says, just like that, Jesus has to be lifted up on a cross. In other words, have a look at your humanity. Have a look at the problem. Don't hide it. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Have a look. This is who we all are. We're all a person who will actually kill God or try to kill God um, to usurp our own authority. This is what the illness is. This is what the disease is. And if you can confront that, there's a possibility of resurrection. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. 
Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You talk about that one episode in the book where they actually find the last kind of Center for Disease Control doctor, and he explains to them how the disease works and and that they all have it latently. But it's interesting. That's one of the few moments of explanation in the entire show. Like, it's amazing to me how a show is that successful and doesn't really do much explaining of how the world ended. It just, it's just a given, you know? And I, I think that, you know, I've, I heard Leslie Newbigin, the great uh, missiologist, theologian, said that, you know, the gospel is not uh, the answer to the problem of evil, philosophical answer to the problem of evil, you know? <laughs> but it is a real, uh, uh, Christianity can be for many people, a real source of healing in the midst of inexplicable evil. And, and it, it, it's amazing. Do you find that interesting that the show, like, you don't get many answer, ultimate big answers. You just, you do get ultimate, you do get answers about what's going on in the immediate things on the ground. Yeah. And, and ultimately those are the big answers. I mean, I, I think like philosophically and theologically, I mean, Jesus is like, you want to change the entire world, love your neighbor, like you love yourself. And you kind of think to yourself like, no, no, it's got to be more complicated than that. Like it's way more complex. So I think in some ways it's quite profound that, actually all you see is that local, like how you're going to treat each other, how you're going to trust each other, how you're going to figure out how you're going to live together, how you're going to survive together, how you're going to protect each other. Here's some questions to ponder, which I found really fascinating conversations in the movie. Do you just feed your weak to let the strong survive? You know, like, is this survival of the fittest or do we actually retain a bit of our humanity by, um, by welcoming the weak, you know, is is that going to be the type of, and and I think even all those questions are so fascinating. Like what kind of community are we going to be? And, um, and that ultimately what kind of community we're going to be is the kind of world we're going to have. And, and, and that's, I think one of the greatest temptations of this generation, because everything does seem so chaotic and complex is everyone just sort of goes, I'm out. It's above my pay grade. Like, and when we're fighting something like human trafficking, for example, this is obvious all the time to me. Like everyone always just assumes like with something like human trafficking, everybody's got it. Somebody's got it. Like the cops have it, you know, the UN has it, like somebody's got it. And then when you actually start looking into it, you realize nobody's got it. Nobody has it. Like everybody has got to choose to live a different way and get involved for this to actually go away and for something to emerge like a solution. Uh, people don't have it. It's not above anybody's pay grade. Do you know what I mean? Like everybody's invited to live a different way and to challenge the ways that we live in order to create a better world. Are are you watching Fear the Walking Dead? I've watched a bit of it mostly on plane rides. You know, I watch a lot of this stuff on planes, but 
um, I've watched maybe a season of it. Yeah. It's interesting because that takes place in, in Southern California and in Mexico, like the Southwestern yeah. border. And, and I mean, two things, one, we got to see more of the transition, like in, in the walking dead, we don't see the transition and that one we got, and it's also much more, uh, the racial tensions and ethnic tensions are in much stronger relief. I mean, there there are there's some initial sort of racial stuff in The Walking Dead with Glenn, and even that is kind of thin, you know. The, I mean, it, it, a little bit with Daryl's brother, you know. Like, but mm-hmm. but it's not as pervasive as it is, it, it, which is it, it really changes the way you tell a story. I mean, it's really interesting how they've been able to they can reinvent the show in a different context. Yeah, and also I thought it was interesting when I was watching Fear of the Walking Dead because I I always thought like, oh, if only those guys had access to water, like like the ocean would be the solution, right? You right. would think like just sail away, and then you're like, wow, that didn't work out, you know? Like, <laughs> so it, in some ways I was like, oh, look at that. I was wondering like, how would this work out in sort of a a SoCal context? And there it is. Um, <laughs> so that was a good answer to my questions, but. Yeah, I think I, I think it's really interesting. The I I like the fact that the show does these big, uh, big arching conversations about humanity for everybody, rather than you know the racial um, sort of tensions that exist in our world. Like I feel like those tensions are actually a deeper question. Like that's just a surface tension. I feel like like racism is a deep, deep question about whether or not we see everybody as equal you know, whether all of humanity is equal or not. It's not really about color. We just make it about color. Um, and I think that's true of, of every, you know, sort of, so I like the idea that the, the walking dead kind of kept it this, these kind of deep general themes, even though it is ironic it, since it is based in the South, that there isn't more racial, um, realities. Cause we know that's a big reality there. Are you going to watch the premiere like live? Yeah. You know, this is the, this is the thing is I don't have cable. So, um, I, you know, I'm like sticking it to the man. And, um, we have this thing in my house. I'm always saying to my kids, you know, the TV lies to you, right? (laughs) And now I've written a book about a show. Anyway, so it's kind of funny, but, um, I definitely will be streaming that puppy as soon as I can. Yeah. Do you think Negan gets a raw deal? You know, Negan is so easy to dislike. What a great actor, by the way. Um, oh yeah. There's an, there's an interview he's been on the Howard Stern show like twice. I could listen to he and Howard Stern talk all day. I mean, he's he bought a candy store in upstate New York with Paul Rudd. Really? Like they they own <laughs> like there was like the local neighborhood saying he like has a farm for rescue animals. Like wow. Like, yeah, it's funny wow. because his kid walks around with this baseball bat and leather jacket. He's like five. He's like, "What are you doing in the chicken coop? I'm playing Negan." And he runs out. Oh no! Luckily, he didn't hit anything. Uh, <laughs> it's like, but yeah, it's don't like, play Negan. Yeah, no, you that's can't right. play Negan. No, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I was just talking to someone the other day, and they were like, "There's like some Twitter feed that's like vote like Team Negan or Team uh, Rick, you know." And we're just all like, "We should like literally all the Team Regan votes should or Team Negan votes should be like monitored by like a terrorist watch list or something. Who's cheering for Team Negan? You know what I'm saying? But um, I think everyone's I think everyone's given a raw deal, right? Because it's about how you deal with your pain. And so this is a really interesting because I've dealt with a lot of bad guys, you know, in my in my job and in my life. And all bad guys in the end have been victimized. I mean, it's just that's how guys get bad. Um, they get victimized and they get groomed. And you see that in Negan, don't you? You see this like survival, like I'm going to survive. I'm going to make the best of it. And it's but it's twisted and dark and self-serving and 
kind of gross and it grosses everybody else. And, um, but it's still, I think in the end, regardless of how it happened and you, you can kind of have empathy for the reason it happened. It's still not the way we want to live. It is still not the way that we want the world to go. And I believe even those guys, like I, I believe that deep down, he doesn't even really want the world to go that way. Um, and he needs an alternative somehow. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what goes down and what happens, but those clear, you know, do you want to rule and do you want to live in a community that's governed by fear and punishment? You know, that's, and that's what that looks like is if you're governed by, and you're, you're walking in a world that's ruled by fear and punishment, that's what that's going to feel like. That's what that's going to look like. And in the end, it looks like a prison for everybody involved. Yeah. And in the comic books, I think, right, like his wife is Lucille and I think she's hospitalized or something. And the the apocalypse kind of happens in that context. And she dies. I mean, he starts off as a pretty sympathetic, decent person and this fear of chaos. Right. You know, like, I mean, because it is he's very authoritarian. But, you know, I mean, part of the way humanity has evolved, right, is, is authority structures and things like that. So it's like, I mean, this is. That I guess the, oh, it's the temptation in our own moment right now, and at least in the United States, right? Like this, people are fearing authoritarianism, but that's often the answer in chaos. That isn't that the struggle so much in the show is how to how to survive in a chaotic world without an authoritarian structure. Yeah, it is like um, it's like you fear and you crave it at the same time, right? Because you you crave the comfort of it. I mean, this is the social. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, Margaret Heffernan is a sociologist that wrote a book called Willful Blindness and kind of explains the way that our, our minds are designed, you know, just neuro, neurologically to believe the truth we want to be true about ourselves, about our relationships, about our government. So it explains sort of like, uh, a spouse that has an affair, you know, for example, and then finally he's busted. And then the person that, you know, has been left, um, has been uh, betrayed, thinks back and realizes that they knew their spouse was having an affair for months and months and months, but just couldn't bring themselves to admit it. And the same is true social uh, in bigger social contexts like Germany, you know, where it's like we knew that Hitler was dangerous and mad. All of us knew, but we also really wanted to be feel safe and strong and financially secure. So we believed those things were true because we wanted them to be true. And it's this kind of like, and I feel like that's kind of like that with fear. We crave it. You know, we crave authority. Uh, we crave authority. That's, you know, sort of with even Trump and the election and stuff like that. Like break, give us someone who's going to make us feel strong again, you know, who's going to make us economically safe and actually physically safe too. Like who's going to, and there's this like desire, like we crave it. But the very thing that we crave, of course, is also the very thing we're afraid of, which means that if everyone's going to be governed by fear and punishment, so are we. And that ends up being this, uh, you know, just state where you're constantly afraid. And I feel like that's really a culture that we're in right now. Um, everybody's afraid of what they don't know. And even, you know, like you said, at the very beginning of this conversation, like it, when you get down to that tribal thing, you know, they're literally afraid to go to the next town because you don't know if those people in the next town are going to be hostile or not. And I feel like we're kind of, we're living in that kind of a, where we don't even know who our neighbors are. And we're taught to be afraid of things we don't know. You know, in the old world, they used to draw the known world map and then they would make a boundary. And on the outside of the boundary, they would write, here's where the dragons live. And the dragons always lived in the unknown, right? Mm -hmm, they didn't. Mm -hmm. So they just assumed that the unknown was scary. And I feel like that's, that's literally what we've done too. And again, this is why I think I call this the gospel, uh, the zombie gospel, because I think that Jesus 
lived in that exact same world. He lived in an authoritative, fearful, punishment-based, with an oppressed people group world. And he modeled a different way to live. Mm. And he modeled um, what it was like to live a life in a fear-based culture without fear. What did fearless look look like? And he modeled an alternative a posture so that you could actually love and you could choose to love even people that didn't deserve to be loved. Um, you could actually do that. And that when you did that, even in small little moments, it transformed culture. You know, it transformed the immediate culture. And then we see the ramifications of that years and years later. I think like for me, the most moving episode, which seems like in some ways the story of everybody's healing in miniature is Morgan's story. Well, that was like a two-hour episode. It was like a movie. Yes. And basically you, we rediscover Morgan and, and he winds up with this, I think it was a forensic psychi- psychiatrist or something that, that basically, it, I, I was, it, it's, it's a great episode just to learn about trauma and PTSD. Yeah. And to yeah. watch Morgan healed uh, and yeah. to see this sort of process of a guy who in, in, in a chaotic world seems uh, more at peace than not at peace, you know, in, in a lot of situations and seems, I, I, I mean, there, there's something about the 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 mass trauma <laughs> of everyone in the show right like everyone has ptsd and, and 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 being able to sort of not have the traumatic past always be ever present right that, that is something about the beauty of the show yeah and he finds and i think this is a beautiful he finds that that is within not without and that that's kind of like a key uh, anyone who's found this like a sense of peace you you find that peace internally don't you that that's the piece that comes from the inside out not from the outside in so and that's that you know ever you know if only the chaos would stop if only the circumstances would change if only we could you know like all i'll feel safe if only all those things in the midst of all of that somewhere he finds he taps into this idea that life is sacred and that it's a gift to be alive and that he feels connected he feels at peace and that out of that place of peace from the inside, he can then bring that peace outward and it, it'll matter. You know, I think that's a, it's a beautiful, that's, he is an, he's an incredible character that goes from victim, you know, to perpetrator. And then finally to like, you know, sort of protector and, um, and a peace man, you know, it's kind of cool. Do you have to spend a lot of your time conv- convincing like other Salvation Army people that, hey, I haven't gone off the reservation. The Walking Dead is really worth like getting into, even though it's a little dark and a little gruesome. <laughs> well, you know what? I, no, I, I never I never try to convince anybody, really. <laughs> to, I'm just like, what? What kind of a fan are you, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> it's like what I try to do is say, if you know someone who's into The Walking Dead and you want them to have like permission to discuss it in a deeper way, then maybe this book will be helpful. That's really why I I wrote the book. Or even if you're like, I ran into a lot of parents whose kids, like high school or teenage kids, or uh, even uh, college age kids were watching The Walking Dead. And they just were like, ah, do I let them watch it? Do I not? Like, do I say like, do we just not talk about it? And so part of it too, is just to say, well, here, give this a read. This might help you actually have a conversation that might matter. Um, And then the other thing I really, I really you know, I, I really thought, I, I really felt led to write this book. It's a really interesting thing. I just, I felt a little bit of uh, inspiration that felt a little otherworldly. Like I breathed out that book on a plane from England in seven hours. I wrote 30,000 words just on a little uh, mini iPad, you know, like, um, wow, 
keyboard. So it didn't have any punctuation. It was a lot of editing later, but, uh, it really just came out. And, um, and I think the show provoked me to hear uh, both a cry of culture and also a, a message that God had for this generation of what it, it, and I really feel like this generation needs to know more than ever what it looks like to be human. And, uh, that Jesus, no matter what you feel about him, he was the best human who ever lived. And so I feel like he's an opportunity to chat with a culture about what it means to be human and that that will matter to how we live our lives and how the world unfolds in this generation. So really, I just, I really kind of felt a calling around it. So I I don't feel any sense of like, buy the book, you know, you've got to read the one. It's not really out of a fan of The Walking Dead that I wrote it. It was really out of this deep cry from a generation that I heard and an answer I I feel like, or at least a deep discussion that God wants to have that might help. Does anybody from the production team of the show know that you wrote the book? Like, are, they, are they aware of it? I don't think so. There were a couple of actors from the show that were going to be on a talk show we were going to host, but I moved uh, before we could do it. I moved out of LA, so it didn't happen. But uh, And they were they were kind of like interested, but the book hadn't come out yet, so I don't think we've sent them the copies. But it is an unofficial it, it says that on the book, you know, it's unofficial, which I wanted it to be banned or something because it would have been cooler to put that on there. But Well, I hope they find it because it's a great book and you're obviously a real student of the show and have brought out some some themes and pictures from it that I think whether you're religious or not, or Christian or unaffiliated, that you can see uh, the gravitas, you know, of, of, of the human condition through the show. And, and it's a great uh, tool to, to get at some of those things. So thank you for writing it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for liking it. I'm glad <laughs> it was glad it's helpful. Well, thanks yeah. for being on the podcast. And I hope we're both pleased with the next season. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Thanks. Thanks for listening to give and take. If you liked what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Danielle for coming on the podcast. Check out her book, The Zombie Gospel. It's well worth the read, especially if you're a Walking Dead fan. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.